Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 9, and can be found on page 340 of your pew Bible. Well, at least most of your pew Bibles. Ezra, chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, O my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of their sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved, and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable crime practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, our God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. May God bless the reading of his word. If this is the first week that you've come to our church, or if you come only irregularly, you've picked a a heavy passage, or a a week where we're going to address a heavy, difficult topic. So let me say, to begin with, I'm not addressing anybody or pointing fingers at anybody in this congregation. Uh, The text will be relevant, 
to many of us, uh, especially mm, challenging to a few, maybe, but it's the Bible, so we'll address it. Now, if you notice as the reading was going on, it's really about one of the most offensive parts of Christianity in today's world, our religious exclusivity and the implications that has for who we marry. And this can seem really offensive. Uh, we were recently in the staff meeting discussing the church marriage practices and policies. And we were talking about mixed marriage. And so the senior pastor turned to me and said, Oh, Chuck, please, no offense. <laughs> I said, It's okay, I'm married to a Christian. It's not a mixed marriage. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is, this is not about ethnically mixed marriages, okay? This is about religiously mixed marriages. And it, it's a sensitive topic. Now, we, we want to, it's not really a cause for joking, and, you know, it's, it's something we want to give careful attention to. But it's not just a random topic. I, I want to explain to you, particularly if you're not here regularly, why it comes up and, and where it fits into what we've been doing. So this whole year, often we uh, focus on the detail. But this whole year, we've been looking at an overview of the Old Testament, and which brings us here to Ezra. But before we get there, let me back up really briefly, quickly, where we've come through. Now, it's really easy to keep track of what's happening in the Bible if you have an overview. It can really be summarized readily and easily. Uh, you know, often we get caught up in the detail and we miss the main picture. But here it is. Throughout Scripture, the regular pattern, this pattern from beginning to end is always this. From Old Testament to New Testament, the pattern is always the same. God is gracious and generous and kind. But this is not, uh, you know, he's, he's not serving narcissists. He's developing a relationship with his people. He's generous and he's kind and he's gracious. And then he calls his people to reciprocate. It's just like any other relationship we have. It's never one-sided. There's always reciprocation. We don't earn God's approval, but God begins with pouring out his grace, and then he calls for reciprocation. The trouble is, while God is reliable, our human nature is not. And so we see at the very beginning in Genesis, God was gracious and created a, this beautiful environment for people to share. And then they failed in their reciprocation. As a result of their failure, they were exiled from Eden. But God doesn't leave his people uh, alone. He pursues them. And God is again gracious. And we, we've looked together at how great God was gracious to Abraham and to all of Israel. From the world, he focused in on Abraham and Israel. And we looked at his grace and the promises that he gave Abraham and Israel. The promises to redeem the world. The promises of descendants and land and nations. And God again called for reciprocation. And he only ever asks for two things. He asks that we worship him. And he asks that we live for him. Live in the way that he calls us to. And so we saw that Abraham and Israel, again, failed to reciprocate. Uh, they wouldn't worship God alone. They worshiped God and a whole bunch of other gods, all the Canaanite deities, whoever might be able to help them. They didn't trust that God would help them. They worshiped all these other gods. And they refused to reciprocate. They didn't live the way he called them to. He called them to justice to, with the, in their relationship with each other. He called them to integrity. And they refused. 
So after centuries of warnings and centuries of patience, God sent them into exile from Palestine. Now where we are is that God has brought them back again. Again, grace. While they were in exile, after the country had been destroyed, many of the people had been murdered or in war, God called them back. He called back the descendants, and he gave them their land. And he asked them, invited them, to have learned the lesson and now to reciprocate. And he calls them back in the book of Ezra. We're in the book of Ezra today. He calls them back at the beginning of Ezra, and he calls them to reciprocate. And the question is, will they? Will they worship him, and will they live for him? And the first thing they do is they build this temple to worship. And we saw that in Ezra 3 to 6, and we saw Haggai and Zechariah all supported the building of this temple. Positive signs so far. At first, the their overlords, the foreign emperor, said, you stop building, and they stopped building. Haggai, Zechariah said, I don't care what the emperor says, we're going to rebuild this temple. They rebuilt the temple, the emperor approved, and so they've worshipped now. They're reciprocating for God. But now, here comes another test. Are they going to... Oh, and then the second wave, sorry, the second wave came in in Ezra 8, the second half of the book, a second wave of people comes in. This is 80 years after the first wave of immigrants. Now a second wave of immigrants. In Ezra chapter 8. And Ezra, for the first time, comes. And now the question is, not only are they going to worship God, but are they going to obey him? And as the second wave comes back, the first thing they do, they arrive in town, they rest for three days. On the fourth day, they go to the temple. They make offerings to God, and they worship. So far, so good. But the question is now, are they not only going to worship, but are they also going to live for God? Will they follow his paths of virtue? Now, we want to look at the broad picture and then the specific application. The broad picture is, will they live for God? Will they follow his law? And this is really Ezra's role. This is the first time that Ezra's come back. The book is half over. Here's Ezra's introduced to the situation. He's introduced to the context. But why Ezra? Why is he so prominent? Look at the description of Ezra in chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses. Verse 10. Ezra arrived back in Jerusalem... He had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord, to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Verse 11. The king Artaxerxes, who had sent Ezra back, explains to the people why. He's a priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes sends him with a letter of reference to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Verse 13. You are sent by the king and seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God. Then they go and worship in the temple. And then King Artaxerxes says about Ezra, whatever Ezra the priest and teacher of the law of the God of heaven tells you, do this. Let it be done with diligence for the temple. The laws of your Lord. 
You ought to teach anyone who doesn't know them. See, throughout Ezra's ministry is to teach the law. It's not enough that the people worship. They must also obey. And these are the only two things that God has ever asked from the beginning of time. In Eden, worship and obey. Abraham and Israel, Moses, worship and obey. And now they come back from exile, and God has been gracious to them to bring them back to the land. And he says, worship, and they build the temple and they worship it. And now he says, obey. And Ezra comes back to teach them the law. Now, the, the first, the general thing we need to learn from this is crucial. It's crucial for America today. Because we have a, a culture that is shifting away from the cognitive to the emotive. So we have a culture where worship is still valued. Particularly emotive worship. And this is essential, and this is half of what God is asking of us. But the other half is obedience. Obedience to Scripture. To to what God has revealed for how we are to live. He's called us to follow Him. He expects us. This is part of our reciprocation, our proper response to the God who's been gracious. In their case, he sent them Ezra to teach them the law of Moses so that they would be careful to do all that he's asked. And throughout chapter 7, 10, 15 references to Ezra and teaching the law. And it's why we do what we do here. Teaching from Scripture, Bible study, as part of our fellowship groups. It's not the only thing we do. Worship and fellowship and outreach are crucial. But we can't be a God-honoring, obedient church without Scripture, without paying careful attention to what it tells us, and without obeying it. So that's the general lesson we learn from the second half of Ezra. But then the specific lesson comes up immediately in chapter 9. And they knew it. They brought it to Ezra himself. After these things had been done, chapter 9, verse 1, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, and not just the people, but even the priests, even the Levites, even the religious leaders of Israel, they haven't kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the people around them. We touched on this briefly a couple of months ago in the case of Solomon. You remember why Israel went into exile in the first place? Because religious intermarriage had led them to religious shared practices. They began worshiping other gods, and God sent them to exile. Now they've come back from exile, and they're going back within 60 years. They've gone back to the same practices. Ezra confesses before God in verse 6. I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword in captivity. So the first thing Ezra does in response is to confess their corporate sin before God. Then he reminds 
himself and all those who are listening to his prayer of God's great grace. We never obey to earn God's grace. The relationship starts with God's grace. Verse 9. Even though God had sent them into exile for their sin, and he had justly sent them into exile, verse 9, but now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant, giving us a firm place in the sanctuary. God gives light to our eyes and relief in our bondage. Though we are still slaves, still an occupied country, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He's shown us the kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He's granted us new life. So Ezra's thinking about life begins with this. God has been generous. Though we offended him, he sent us in exile. God has been generous. He's called us back. He's given us a new life in a new land. He's brought our descendants back to the land he promised. And now in response, he says... Verse 10. Now, our God, what can we say after this? After you've been gracious to us, what can we say for ourselves? We've forsaken the commands you gave us through your servants, the prophets. You said the land you're entering to possess is polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they filled it with impurity from one end to the other. Don't give your daughters the marriage to them or your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them. He's saying, keep yourselves religiously separate. Keep yourselves separate from marriage so that you can keep yourselves separate religiously. God, after your grace, what can we say? You've told us this, and we haven't done it. Verse 13. The previous exile, what happened to us as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt? And yet, God, you've been gracious. You've punished us less than our sins deserved. You've given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Wouldn't you be angry enough to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? You see how serious this is. Uh, God calls us not only to worship, but also to obey. And the law is there, the scripture is there to guide us in our obedience. And here's a, a case in point. The Jews were marrying non-Jews. And inevitably, their, their religion was going to intermingle. They would worship their gods, and they would worship the gods of their spouses. And God said, I have forbidden this. And Ezra says, you've been so gracious to us. What if we turn our backs on your grace again? What will happen to us then? Now in Ezra, we won't look at the detail, but Ezra chapter 10, in Ezra they came up with a, a solution. We won't look at it in detail because this solution no longer works. I'll show you from the New Testament that this solution is no longer appropriate today. Convicted of their sin and their rebellion, they say, okay, okay, we must act decisively. And they divorce their wives and send the children away. They took it that seriously. The New Testament endorses half of this, 
but not the other half. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. Here's the change. There is no justification, even in a mixed marriage, for divorce. In, in 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, what's happening is, hey, the, the, Jesus came to the Jews predominantly, and he came to Palestine. But then the gospel begins to spread. And when the gospel spreads, you know how it is, particularly if you're married and a first-generation Christian. Who became a Christian first, you or your spouse? And they're addressing this question. Look, the Bible says, the only Bible they have, the Old Testament, the Old Testament says Jews should not marry non-Jews. Christians should not be married to non-Christians. What happened? I just converted. I've come to faith in Christ. What's going to happen? Should I divorce my spouse like they did in Ezra? And God says, no. The Apostle Paul writes, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Any woman who has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. What they were worried about is that if I really want to have a heart for Jesus, I want to be pure and worship him and serve him. If my spouse worships and serves another god or doesn't worship and serve this, will this contaminate me? Do we, do we have to do what Ezra said to do? Do we have to divorce? And Paul says, the influence doesn't work from the contaminated spouse to the uncontaminated spouse. That's not the understanding. Paul says, actually, you're a positive influence in their lives. They're not a negative influence in your life. So Paul writes, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would have no spiritual positive influence. But as it is, they have that influence. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. As it is, they are holy. But his point is that if you've become a believer and your spouse has not yet followed suit, as Scripture elsewhere tells us, live an honorable life, worship God, serve Him faithfully, be kind, show Christian character, and your influence may lead your spouse to faith, may lead your children to, to faith. Don't be contemptuous, arrogant, proud. Don't hassle them, pressure them into coming to the faith. Don't, don't live Bible verses on the mirror so every time they comb their hair they see a Bible verse. By, the, by your life, attract them to Christ. That Paul corrects from the Old Testament. But this one he doesn't correct. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 39 and 40, he deals with the case of a widow, widower, widow, but it applies more broadly in all marriage. Notice what he says about marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 and 40. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Now notice what we do with this. We do something very odd with this, right? When we want to figure out, oh, who should I marry, we pray about it diligently. We find somebody and we pray that, you know, they'll respond positively. We make who the person we marry a matter of great mm, exertion, concern, passion. You know, who, who should I marry? And, and we look for some sign from God 
whatever that is. And, we, and if we have a sign and they don't, we look for God to give them a sign, whatever that is. Now, Paul says, don't worry about it. What does he say? She's free to marry anyone she wishes. Now, I would advise praying about who you marry before you do. <laughs> you know, I would advise that. But if you don't have a sign from God, don't sweat it. The Bible says you can marry anyone you want, provided they also want to marry you. And that's enough of a challenge for some of us that we don't have to be looking for some mystery from, from God. Okay? That's the qualification he sets down. Anyone you want, provided one thing. He or she must belong to the Lord. So the New Testament endorses the notion that Christians should only marry, practicing Christians should only marry practicing Christians. But let's think about some of this, about why. Why God would ask this of us, and whether it's fair that he asks this of, this, asks this of us. Think about it this way. If you're married already, if you're not married, you can tune this out a little bit. You live in, live in uh, the ideal world. But if you're married, you already know this. Think about the things you quarrel about. And think about how hard some of this is. If you like to take expensive holidays as a reward for working 50 weeks a year, and you like to take expensive holidays overseas, and your spouse wants to invest that money in your IRA so that when you're too old to travel, you can at least have enough money to live. How do you get through that? Think of the, the conflict you can have over that. If one of you likes to clean the house every week, and one of you is happy enough to bring in a steam cleaner once a year and do the whole thing all at once, Think of the conflict you have over that, how hard it is to get through. Commonly, it's quite common that a homebody, shy, like marries a social, you're not social butterfly, but an extrovert. Introverts often marry extroverts, and extroverts for one reason or another marry introverts. And then when you come home from work every single night of the week, you've got a decision to make. Are we going to go socialize and hang out with our friends? Or are we going to stay home and kind of just kind of hang around the house? And think of how the con number of conflicts you can have over that. It seems that people who fastidious and like to cover the tube of the toothpaste often marry people who couldn't care what happens to the top of the toothpaste. And think of the conflicts you can have over that silliness. Or should a toilet roll go this way, or should a toilet roll go that way? If we can have such painful struggles over this sort of thing, what's going to happen if my life is not centered on Jesus, and my spouse's life is centered on Jesus. What's going to happen when my spouse says, you know, when I say, hey, let's go away for the day to the beach, and, and my spouse says, sure, right after church. 
little thing. What's going to happen when I want to spend money on a fancy vacation and my spouse says, well, we haven't given money to the work of God yet, church or non-church, wherever you give your money. How are you going to decide about how much money to give and where? What's going to happen if you have kids and do we bring them to church or do we not bring them to church? What happens if one of those, church deci- one of those kids decides, oh, I'm not going to be an engineer, I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm not going to be a lawyer, I'm going to become a pastor and well, I'm going to become a missionary and not make much money. What's going, to be ha- what's going to happen with how you raise your children? Not just day to day, but what goals you set for them in life. This is not simply a matter of ethnic or religious purity. It's a matter of common sense that if my life is governed in one direction and my spouse's life is governed in another direction, you know, you don't have to face these things before you get married, but you're going to have to face them, some serious ones, after you get married. Let's look at one more dimension of this. Why it makes sense is one dimension of the practicality. The other is, the other dimension of the practicality is how hard this decision is, make, is to make sometimes. Realistically, if we follow this teaching, this reduces the number of people we can choose to marry. And not so much in this church, but in some churches, it really reduces the number of eligible people for women to marry. Because while we have a lot of men in this church, some churches are strongly female. So it raises the prospect of somebody not getting married at all if they marry only in the faith. And that's a huge thing to ask of anybody. But here's the thing. It's not something I'm asking of you. It's something that Jesus asks of us. Remember in Ezra chapter 8 or 9, and when they said, God, you've been gracious. You, you took us back from exile. You brought us into the land. And now, how, how can we hold our head up and, and do this? We're in a much more gracious, but also challenging position than they were. All God had done from them was to keep them alive. Keep them safe for three or four months while they traveled back. Give them a new life with some of their family in a new land. That's all God had done for them. It's a lot, but that's all. God's given us Jesus, his son, to live and to die for us, to reconcile us to himself so we can have a life with God now and a life with God for eternity. And as a result, he's given us community and friends and purpose in life and a lot of other things. How much more difficult our situation is 
than theirs. Because God has given us so much more than he gave them. And we say, Lord, in view of your generosity, we say with Ezra, now God, what can we say after this? Shall we break your commands again and intermarry with peoples that you've told us not to? It's a difficult thing. Once when I was talking with the missions committee of another church, they asked for my advice in a case. They said, well, what would you advise to missionaries who are living in a creative access nation, in a dangerous nation? These missionaries are living in a Muslim nation. Their neighbors have just been killed. Their, their colleagues, missionary colleague neighbors have just been killed. Now this couple has to decide whether they come back to the U.S. or whether they stay there with their kids. Do, does the husband risk his life worse? Does he risk his wife's life worse? Does he risk his children's life? Do they stay in the field? Do they come back? What would you say? Now the answer to that is really, really easy. I don't tell them anything. Only Jesus can ask that of them. And they've got to talk to Jesus about it and figure out what he wants from them. In that case, the Bible doesn't give them an answer. And I'm certainly not the one to give them an answer. Only Jesus can, because he's the one who's been gracious to them. But in this case, the decision is easy, but painful. Because Scripture tells us what God wants of us. And so it's a hard choice. Often it's a very hard choice. But let's not exaggerate, actually, how hard it is. Let's consider this. We've heard a lot about same-sex marriage recently. Let's say somebody has SSA, same-sex attraction. I mean, they don't choose it. Whether they're born or... They don't choose it. It's not a wishful conscious, oh yeah, I want to marry somebody of my same gender. But what does God call them to? Hey, can we legitimately say God calls them to celibacy? and deny what God calls us to? Or let's say we have dating couples. And you know, American dating practices, it's very easy to cross the line. And God sets down a line for us. And, and it's very easy to cross the line. And what do we say to a dating couple? Well, don't cross the line. But I can ignore this part, even though you shouldn't ignore that part. Or somebody who, from one circumstance or another, somebody perfectly godly and serving and worships God, and somehow just, they just never connect with somebody to get married. They're lifelong singles. And God calls them to certain conduct and purity. And what do we say to them? Don't worry about it. Or do we say to them, oh, no, no, you must live pure, but I don't have to follow Jesus. Or what do we say to the married? When the Bible says... Don't get a divorce. Work it out. To the extent that it's within you, work it out. If you get divorced, that's one thing. But don't initiate a divorce if you're a believer. And, and what do we say to them? Well, we are, yeah, you've got to follow Jesus, but, but I, I don't have to follow Jesus. Or, or what do we say to the married who have an opportunity to commit adultery? Now, happily, this one, our culture agrees. Most of our culture will say adultery is a terrible thing. 
But what, what do we say to somebody who's thinking about adultery or committing adultery? No, no, you, know, you can't do that. But Jesus is more tolerant and gracious to me. I can, do, I can d- disobey this teaching, though you can't disobey that one. This is a really hard teaching if we're already involved intimately with somebody we care deeply about. And Jesus says, no. Now, it makes a whole lot more sense to listen to Jesus before you start a relationship than to get three quarters of the way down the relationship and then listen to Jesus. We can get so far into a relationship where we've already made our choice to disobey Jesus. But this is not a choice that's a lot harder than what God has called many of his people to, even today. This is a hard choice. But it's not an impossible choice. It's not harder than what God calls many people to. But here, to my mind, is the clincher. No matter what he calls other people to, and how our decision compares with theirs, this is a lot, this is hard, but it's still not nearly as hard as what God called his son to for us. God has been incredibly gracious and generous. And he calls us now to reciprocate, even when it's painful. But now, O oh God, what can we say after this? Shall we then break your commands again after you've been so faithful to us? Let's pray together. Father, sometimes your Bible shows us all the great things you've done for us, and we thank you for those. But sometimes your word, sometimes you, call us to reciprocate in painful ways. We ask you to help us, that your grace so might capture our hearts, that our our obedience would not seem like a hard choice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Chuck.